Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And I'm Erin. We're two mothers with a total of seven kids ages 1 to 17 and two PhDs in English. I'm an assistant professor of English and a program director. And I'm an acquisitions editor for an academic press. In the 10 years that we've known each other and seen our families grow, we've often found it difficult to relate to our families what it's like to be an academic and to relate to our colleagues what it's like to have kids. So during this pandemic, we decided to start this podcast to counter our own isolation and hopefully connect with other parents in academia. Thanks so much for being here and lending us your ears for about the next hour. All right. So it's been a little bit. Uh, welcome back to our listeners and Judith. Good to hear from you again. How have you been lately? Yeah, it's great to see you today, Erin, and great to talk to you. It's been uh, pretty much unchanged for us, I think, except for the weather. Uh, we've talked about the weather a little bit. Finally, we've had some spring weather, snow melting, so we've been going outside every day, which has been great. Otherwise, there's really not that much new here. Uh, everybody is still, you know, going to school as they can. And um, otherwise, uh, we're just chugging along, trying to make it through a few more months of this. How about you? Yeah, it remains pretty busy. I think that's kind of a catch-22, if you will, because on the one hand, I'm glad to see that my kids are in school. My son's high school, about every other week, or maybe actually twice a week, we're getting a notice about possible COVID exposure. There have been exposures with sports, a lot of sports, um, which makes me question the necessity of carrying on with contact sports. I know there was an outbreak related to their girls' basketball team because someone else on the other team had it. I think five or six girls ended up getting it. Um, and so I think all in all, 40 people ended up quarantined from the high school. So that's kind of a little bit <laughs> daunting, to say the least. And just trying to balance everything. I know for some of our listeners, um, you might, like me, have some accelerated semesters. So right now, I am just ending the last week of my eight-week online course that I teach. And so I'll be starting a brand new one on Monday. So I have to get all my grading done and everything like that. And it just seems like it's been really busy. And so busy, in fact, that you and I have decided to go to at least a bi-weekly schedule just to try to make sense of our busyness. Judith staying home with a small child and balancing work with that. Myself having four kids and trying to work from home. So we just want to let everyone know we are loving doing this podcast, but just with a schedule and everything that work life balance that we talk about so much on the podcast, we had to really make the call to maybe go to a little bit less busy schedule. And so we will still be coming to you, but probably every other week. And so we're appreciative of your patience, but I think that really made sense for us now. And so with all that in mind, I've been thinking a lot about careers, um, reading a lot about what's going on in higher education. I know at my college, we're really embracing what we're calling the online live format. So that means offering a full college class, just like you do in person, but from the home. And so that's kind of interesting. And we do see so many shifts in higher education. And obviously, we've talked about this so much over the last year. But there was a story that came out in higher ed in summer 2020, just looking at the initial economic fallout from the pandemic. Obviously, things were not looking good. Um, the overall postings on higher ed jobs was down about 30% from the previous year. That sounds about right to me. I know just looking at the job list, it was pretty pitiful um, for 2020 for sure. Job postings on higher ed plummeted by 40% from March to July. 
but they have been slowly coming back. Some people think that we might be on a positive uptick. I think there's just still so much confusion out there about what the future holds. And so I started thinking a little bit more about the kind of work you do. And we've talked a lot about alt-ec gigs and alt-ec jobs and what that looks like. But I wondered for some of our listeners that are still in dissertation mode, maybe still even in coursework or people such as myself that maybe work at a right to work kind of situation where you're not tenure track and you don't have a contract, is it worth kind of starting to think about alt-ac jobs? And you're in the field. So before we dig in, I mean, what does that phrase even mean? Yeah. So as we've addressed on the podcast, and as many of our listeners probably already know and are painfully aware, uh, I just recently saw another statistic that only about 12 to 15 percent of doctoral program graduates end up in a tenure track position. And so, of course, we are all also sort of uh, aware of the adjacent positions, uh, lecturer positions, adjuncting, the more teaching-oriented um, appointments that are still available and but then there's sort of you know the larger the circle the larger we throw our circle the more other possibilities become available right so according to an inside higher ed article the term altac first emerged on twitter in 2010 where they were the whoever created it and started circulating it was trying to combat the previously used non-academic. And I think we um, also sort of know that there was this negative stigma attached to non-academic, you know, especially in the graduate programs. I don't know if that's sort of, I assume that that's sort of like a generally circulating sensibility among um, professors and department members that we want to see most of our graduates sort of, uh, transition into academic positions, non-academic sort of has this like negative um, side or negative implication. And so um, the the term Altec was sort of invented or created to come to describe these positions that are outside of the main teaching stream um, with a more sort of neutral tone. And so what we what some of the positions are, you know, that we can look at there is so some people use Altec only to refer to other positions within the university. So we're looking at student affairs, academic affairs, anything like that, research and development, the library, administrative positions. That's sort of the more narrow sense of the term. And then there are others who really think about the term Altec as anything. Any labor that's performed by a trained academic, basically. So, and that could be anything, right? And that's um, so that's sort of where it gets interesting when you're in in a PhD program and you get, you're working on a dissertation or you're getting a de- degree to just really think outside of the university, what are some fields that you might be well prepared, prepared for? And I know that, you know, that looks very different for the humanities and social sciences than it does in the STEM field. Uh, Danielle talked about it, oh, you know, a, f- a few months now ago, I think she was talking about some opportunities that are available for um, for STEM candidates in research and um, other outside um, outside of the university and and the more public fields, and so I think for our intents and purposes and for today we can sort of work with the broader definition of the term. I think you know being in academic publishing, I'm definitely sort of in a for profit field, but I'm still working with academics and I'm still working you know 
in an ac- academy related field. So that's sort of like a, uh, an intermediate space, I would almost say. But I think it makes sense to sort of explore all options today and think about the term in the most broadest sense that's available. Um, I can talk a little bit more about my experience and how I got where I am today. But before I do, Aaron, um, did you consider any uh, alt-act positions at all? And if so, what was that experience like? Yeah, so I'm a little bit different, perhaps, than some of the guests we've had on here. I did not initially feel called to higher education. So in fact, I have a bachelor's degree in journalism, and I was working as a freelance writer and editor. I have kind of a strange CV and background, but I had some different interesting jobs. I edited a business magazine for about four years while I was still in college. It started off as an internship, and then I ended up editing it. I worked at a top-tier TV station here in Detroit doing news, news writing there for about a year. Then I also went on to be a per diem writer for a hospital, um, one of our larger hospitals here, Henry Ford Hospital. So I was editing and writing stories for medical uh, folks within that medical community. And then I finally ended up going for about five years working for a small publishing firm that focused in on self-help pamphlets. And we also published two journals, it was interesting because at the time, I did not have the acumen or the background in higher education. So because both of the journals had journal in the title, I was actually approached by a lot of people who were trying to get parts of their dissertation published, and I just didn't really get the connection. And I might have told you this before, but I was like, uh, wow, they're so happy to publish in my journal. I can't believe I don't have to pay these people, you know, because to me, it didn't make sense. Um, And so I had that background, and I started graduate school in my MA program when I was working at the publishing company. And so I actually thought, you know, okay, I'm going to get my master's degree and maybe I'll teach at the community college level. Maybe I'll take on a couple classes at night. I think that'd be a neat way of sort of like helping the writing community because I used to get a lot of press releases and things like that in the mail. And I was just like horrified by the bad grammar. So I guess I've always been this way. Um, And then while I was getting my master's degree, I've told this story before, but I had a really great mentor, Dr. Levin. He was like, have you ever thought of getting a PhD? I think you'd be really good at it. And he actually had a really similar career trajectory that I had had, although he was a bit more successful. I just remember he was a writer for the New York Department of Sanitation. I just I feel like I remember that. And so then he went back into academia and he had encouraged me to get my PhD. So then when I met all you at Wayne State, I was like, "Okay, cool, I could do this. So long story short, I guess you could say, I really have thought about maybe thinking of applying for some of these different jobs, right? Whether that would be in marketing or writing, or as you suggested, the sort of non-professorial jobs within higher academy. So like maybe being an academic advisor. I'm an extrovert. I like talking with people. So I've applied for some of those jobs in the past. I've applied for different writing jobs where I'm like, I know I could do that, but you did. here's the rub. I've been out of that journalistic field for so long. It's a little bit of a mess for me because they're going to come back and say, well, you haven't done that kind of writing now in 10 years. So how well prepared are you? So I don't know if it would be easy for me to get back into that field or not, but I definitely have applied for a lot of those jobs here and there, especially when My funding was running out in about 2016, and that is exactly when you sent me the ad for this full-time job that I have now. But I definitely applied for a lot of writer positions. 
Um, I have applied for academic positions in the past that weren't necessarily professorial, right? It was like, um, I want to say PR, marketing, those types of things. And I have not gotten many bites on any of those jobs. So I just wonder if I'm too far out of the loop. And that's a little bit scary too, because as we know, if higher ed is changing, and it, it clearly is, um, what do I do next, right? What if I can't find a good full-time job somewhere after this one? That's a little scary for me. So that's been my experience. Um, I also think it's a little funny too. I never know if I should include my past professional experiences on my academic CV. I do now because I think there's value. Like part of the work I did at that small publishing firm was we helped put on conferences I helped write the promotional materials for that. I also helped think about what uh, and who we could invite to speak at those. So I think that's worth putting on there. But then when I'm applying maybe for an alt-act job, I don't know how it goes the other way. Like, how do you take your 12-page academic CV and make it, quote, a resume? I don't know. So that's yeah. little. That's about yeah. my journey. Tell me a little bit more about yours. Were you always aiming to go into higher education and you kind of split off after graduate school? Were you, did you have hopes for doing maybe something outside of teaching? That's a good question. I think I always had multiple options in the back of my mind. When I went through my master's program in Germany, I did have, um, part of my degree was a publishing degree. So like my master's degree in Germany, you do like multiple subjects at the same time. So my degrees were in American lit, German lit and publishing. And so I did have that background. And then once I, when I was in grad school, I did some of the teaching assistantships, but then I also took on a, an editorship of a journal where I was then the, the managing editor. And so I, the, all of the editorial work and the content was handled in the English department. And then all the publishing was handled by the university press. And so I was sort of like the contact person between the editorial side of things, content, uh, contact with the authors, and then also working with the press and working with the copy editor. So I was sort of like the connecting person there, which was great um, experience for the job that I have now, except maybe for the fact that I had never actually set foot in a publishing house. So as I was entering the job market, I felt really well prepared for jobs in publishing, maybe better than for teaching jobs because I didn't have the opportunity because I took that route. I didn't have the opportunity to get as much teaching experience under my belt as some of my colleagues. And so I did feel maybe a little bit more prepared for a job in publishing or even project management or something like that. Just because, uh, yeah, just because of what I had done and then the degrees that I had and the interest that I had. I sort of always had this idea that I was going to go into scholarly publishing. I had that idea for a long time, but I also sort of at the same time had the idea that I might, you know, just continue the career in the academy. And I've always been, you know, very invested in the research side of things. So I did, I feel like, you know, I did a reasonable job getting some material published. Uh, I wasn't, a, you know, a super prolific writer, but I got sort of like the two articles and, uh, you know, some book reviews and some other types of writing published during my career as a grad student. And then I, as I mentioned before, I did send out some applications for tenure track positions and teaching positions before I graduated. 
And then around the time that I graduated, I sort of, I had my two kids and I felt like I wasn't really maybe necessarily uh, ready to do a lot of moving and a lot of sort of uprooting the entire family because the kids, because my son was really little when I graduated, I just, it was a struggle for me. So I tried to, and I was in the DC area at the time. So there was a lot of opportunity. I really wanted to see what else was out there because if I was ever going to be in a place where there were opportunities for somebody with a PhD in English, it was going to be there. Right. So I did go out and I applied for the publishing job that I have now. I applied with uh, a number of other university presses, but I also applied for like more, um, research oriented um, jobs in nonprofit organizations in the DC area. And then I had a couple of for-profit companies that where I actually progressed the furthest in the job application process. There were a couple companies that had sort of like writing and editing jobs that invited me for interviews and then had some, did some tests and things like that. And that resulted in one job offer and, the other one, I I think I did. I underestimated the test that they sent me and definitely like underperformed on that one. So that didn't lead to a job offer, unfortunately. I think that would have been a good opportunity. But there were the job that I have now, and I think I've mentioned this was a really it was really a long story and a long process of me um, begging for the job. Almost uh, I applied multiple times for the same position. I did at some point an informational interview. And the way that I got that informational interview was really interesting, actually. I had subscribed to a listserv in my field. And then in over that listserv, I got an announcement for a new series that was um, started in the publisher that I worked for now. And there was an editorial contact. And so I sent an email to that editor and was like, I have applied for a job with you guys multiple times. What does one need to do to get an interview? And then she put me in touch with the person who was the editorial director at the time. She invited me for an informational interview. And then I still had to wait. I think I still applied two or three more times. Didn't went for an interview at least once for an actual job interview at least once didn't get the job again. And then, um, ultimately got a call when they had another hiring process and weren't able to didn't apparently didn't have another qualified candidate. So it took a lot of patience for me to get to the point where I am today. I just wanted to break in. I actually am not familiar with an informational interview. Um, is that just where they like share information? I mean, it seems to be almost a courtesy or are they saying, well, maybe we take you on. I actually don't know what that is. That's it's yeah, that's pretty much what it is. It was a courtesy. Probably I, you know, when I emailed about the job or when, when my now colleague put me in touch with the editorial director at the time, She said, we just filled that position, but we hire very frequently in these positions. So why don't you come in, bring your resume in. You can introduce yourself to me. We can talk about like what your expertise is, what your interest is, which was really helpful for me because a lot of the 
experience that I had was actually more production related. And now I'm in an acquisitions department and I wanted to be in an acquisitions department, but I really got um, more insight into that where she was able to say, look, these are things that are, that you have on your resume that actually we wouldn't be doing here. Like if I hired you in this position into the acquisitions department, X, Y, and Z are not things that you would be doing. Like I had some copy editing experience um, and, and some proofreading experience and things like that. And she said, those are actually not things that you would be doing. So she was able to really describe the position that I was applying for, which of course helped me then the next time tailor my application a little bit more clearly to that. And then, um, the other thing was that I was really able to talk to her about um, the the sort of atmosphere in the company. So I was able to put on the table, and we've talked about this too, and I still feel that this is a really interesting question. I was able to put on the table, I have a family, I have two kids, I am looking for something that's family friendly. And she was able to say, here's how we handle that here. Right. And so I know that that's not something that we're supposed to, you know, do ahead of time or whatever, or it's like such a, such a fine line to walk. But it was, for me, it was really helpful to be able to say, this is the situation that I'm in. If I do come work here, there might be days where I have to leave early because my kid has a stomach ache and I have to go pick her up or there's a snow day or, you know, whatever. And how would you handle that? Um, with, and, and so I was able to really clearly state my interest in, you know, in the position and that I was dedicated and that I was really interested in working there, but that I had these sort of, they're not constraints. They're just like facts of life that you sometimes have to schedule around. Like they're like scheduling conflicts or something like that. And so that was really helpful to be able to, uh, to have those conversations with her ahead of time so that I knew when she called me up and said, are you still interested in this position? She knew what she was getting herself into with me as well. And so that, I thought that was really helpful. Uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, I just think that sounds great. I know in the academy, sometimes when we have so many people applying for the same position, but like, I would just love that feedback, you know, like, what is your culture like here? How willing are you to work with me? Yes, I have a young family. Yes, there are times where maybe I need to not take the 630 to 930 class at night. You know, I, I just think that would be so cool if every job kind of had that like little preface, if you will, to applying in the application, because it might save us some heartache. Like, oh, I wouldn't even want to work here anyway. Okay, great. Right. I'm glad to get that out of the way rather than going through all the motions, then finding out that the culture isn't a good fit or how they address maybe needs of working parents or things like that. I just think it's interesting too that so much has changed. This is just a side note, anecdotally speaking, when we're thinking about families and what we're doing. You did. I have seen people feeding babies, trying to comfort their children in class. I was in a meeting the other day where someone was watching one of their, they were infants, and I guess it was their niece and nephew. I mean, they were tiny babies, baby bottle in the meeting. I've just never seen that. So I think in some ways, as much as the pandemic is such a bummer, I feel like a lot of this is becoming normalized in a way. And I mean that in a good way, you know, that like people realize okay, we're working from home. We actually do have kids, whereas in the past, I always tried to like sort of brush it away. So that's a side note. How did you handle trying to set up some of these interviews and thinking about childcare and things like that? You know, that's a really 
that's a huge caveat for me in this conversation. And it's also, I also want to mention that it was 14 months from the first time that I applied until I actually got hired into this position. And I really got the sense that these informational interviews are essential. I got that with a lot of the other jobs that I applied for in the DC area, I felt that I would have benefited from reaching out to people and being like, hey, can I just come by, introduce myself, learn a little bit about the work that you do there. Um, And then, you know, usually you're supposed to sort of like bring something to, I mean, if you're meeting with somebody, what's the benefit to them for taking time out of their day to explain to you how the company works? And the other thing is, and I think I've mentioned this too before, that i for each of the job interviews that I went to, I went to quite a few job interviews. Um, I had to figure out because I wasn't working, so I couldn't justify having childcare and I didn't live near my family and my husband was working full time. So how do you even go to interviews when you get invited? So a lot of those times, like he would have to take time off so that I could even go to an interview. And I was really very reluctant to schedule times for informational interviews Uh, to make my husband stay home, uh, to take time off because he also doesn't have a ton of vacation time, uh, to have him stay home so that I can go attend an informational interview that may or may not eventually sometime down the line turn into something. So that was, uh, that was a challenge that I don't really have much of an answer for. One time I, it was over the summer, I had a job interview and, Um, you know, it was in DC so that, you know, you had to add the commuting time. So it's not just the hour, hour and a half of the interview. It's like, you know, it takes an hour to get there, an hour to get back. One time I asked my daughter's, um, preschool teacher to watch my two kids because I really didn't have anybody else. Um, and she was happy to do it and, and, and whatnot. She was helpful, but those are uncomfortable things to do. Like I did not, you know, that made me really, I really didn't want to do that. And then that job interview was a really horrible experience. So I just felt even worse about it afterwards. So that's a question that I don't really have an answer to. And I think that's partially what made this whole process very difficult for me was that I felt I could really benefit from taking the train. We lived about 45 minutes outside of DC or an hour. So taking the train into DC and like making stops at some of these nonprofits that maybe I would be interested in that are doing really cool work and introducing myself and just kind of seeing if I can meet some people. But I didn't have the liberty to do that. So I think having kids definitely complicates this whole process and to you have to rely on help in some way. Um, and, and it's hard to get that when you're not in your family. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I am so fortunate, like I said, to have my mom like literally five minutes away. With that in (laughs) mind, I mean, you know, so we kind of are all familiar with the career path or trajectory of like how it works in academia, right? We sort of start off assistant, associate. What is it like when you're working in an Alltech job? I mean, is it the same kind of path or like how how do you know you're going to like sort of be placed within an organization like yours? That's another rough one. And I think that varies probably from field to field. But I, my experience was that I had to start entry level. And that was reflected in some other things that I saw online. So if it, for anybody out there who happens to be interesting in, interested in exactly the same field, publishing, or even specifically scholarly publishing, there are a lot of editors on Twitter that are sharing 
um, that are not just sharing their content work, but are also talking about working in publishing and what that's like. And I've seen multiple instances of people being like, you need to expect to start at entry level. And that's, I think, for publishing is very typical. And that's tough to handle sometimes. You do feel that, you know, with a PhD, you should come, you should be able to come in at, at an advanced level. And there's just a lot that happens in the, it, so let me put it this way. It's hard, but it made, after I was there, it made sense to me that that's what the trajectory was. I, there was a lot of, and, and a lot of that has to do with what I said earlier, which was that I never actually set foot in a publishing department or working a full-time job is very different from being in grad school, obviously. And so just to get the processes down and to figure out exactly, just to sort of have this like basic training that was very formal, like I had to learn how to use their database and all of these things, it really was helpful to me to start at that level. And then, um, you know, I was able to move up and, and move into an acquiring position. And that was, you know, that was fine. And it did, I did feel that it made sense to me. I also, that the process of starting at that level made sense to me. I also felt very quickly that I could have, you know, that I could have, or I was, I was so familiar with the processes very quickly and it was so basic compared to some of the other subject matter knowledge that I have that I did feel, you know, that it would have been easy to present myself very differently in a job interview, for example. So like when I went to these job interviews, a lot of these job interviews that I did, everything was so hypothetical, right? Everything was like, oh, I think I could do this. If somebody sat me down for a week and showed me some of like the basic footwork and then, you know, I can learn that quickly and then I'll be fine. But you just kind of have to have that. And then there's just a lot of questions. And we talked about those before too. There's a lot of questions in job interviews where they're like, what's an example for how you've handled a difficult conversation or a conflict at work or anything like that. And it's just so much easier to fill that with content when you've actually worked in the field for even just a couple months. And so, you know, my, what I would do differently if I were to be in grad school again, is that I would, my entire CV and my entire resume was geared very much toward being an academic until I got to the journal editorship that I was talking about earlier. And even that was very much like cushioned in working closely with the professor in the English department. So I think it is if, if anyone out there is considering, you know, Altec jobs after grad school, I would definitely recommend getting some experience outside of the academy. And I think in America, most people have that a lot more than I used to. Like the work that I was doing as a master's student was all within the university too. I was a student assistant. So I really didn't have any sort of practical life experience <laughs> outside of like being a student and being an academic. And that I feel like would be something that I would probably do differently if I had to do it all again. It sounds like what you're talking about, too, is like curating a CV and creating your brand, which is something that people have brought up in our comments, too. And being mindful or aware or cognizant even of needing to do that, 
I don't think we got that feedback or that guidance. I'm not trying to be dismissive of all the great things that happened during graduate school, but I don't remember having a conversation about CVs. I know that sounds like a really basic thing, right? Maybe there should be a little bit of like, here's how you craft your CV. I mean, I could be remembering wrong. It's been a long time. It's like three kids later or whatever, but (laughs) I don't remember anyone sitting down with me and saying like, what is it that you want to do? Like my CV, I have to give props to Donnie. He's in Texas now, but he was one person that actually volunteered to sit down with a bunch of grad students and like look at our resumes. And I just remember he was like, he made these little like crazy little eyes um, using the at signs like holy white space. And he was like, why do you have so much space on your CV? It looks really weird. I'm like, I don't know. I probably Google searched how to make a CV. And that's what I came up with. And he's like, you've got all these crazy fonts um, because he's actually really, um, he's done work in like design and things like that and like visual rhetoric. So I just remember because it was so funny. I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize I was doing something wrong. So I do remember that. So props to Donnie for that one. Um, But other than that, I mean, to think about and be really mindful about that. We've talked about this a little bit. I think Adrian did mention kind of like maybe taking out some of those lines, but I don't remember having that talk in graduate school. Now it's like hindsight. So right, I can kind of take my CV and move things around, but I can't go back in time and get experience, right? I can't go back to like 2016 and be like, oh, maybe this would be a good thing to take on. I was able to do some work, which I think was helpful. But again, this was all on the academic track of like taking on some summer teaching jobs that I think really did um, help me in my job search because I worked for the McNair Scholars Program. So that was a really, I think, good job posting to have extra outside of like just teaching a college class. And then I worked for a special organization that promotes um, minorities in the STEM field. And I was, I gave them like a six week tutorial on what to expect, what to expect in college English classes at Wayne State. So that might've been good, but I think that's really helpful you to, to sort of think and, and for our listeners to like kind of think about what experiences you might want to step outside of academia, if you will, if you have any inkling that maybe you're not going to be 100% on the teaching track, maybe it's good now to be kind of thinking about those. And if you're early career too, I mean, I'm at more of a career slash community college. So with me, it's a little different. But I think for other folks that are still kind of figuring out what they want to do, it might make sense to do that. And then when you're describing too, kind of this entry level, I feel like it did mirror what happened to me in in my job, which is I started out as just a full-time faculty. And it was like acclimating with whatever this college was using. Is it Blackboard? Is it Canvas? Is it something different? Figuring out what they do as far as scheduling. And then after that, I was a program director. Now I'm a different. So I've kind of also maybe gone up the trajectory from just faculty to administrative. So there's a little bit of similarity there, I think, if that makes sense. Yeah, it sure does. And, you know, I think once you're once you're in somewhere, you know, you pick up those things as you move along. And it's just so theoretical when you haven't done anything like that. Like these, you know, when you go online and you look up the questions that uh, people ask you in job interviews, those are really helpful lists to have because people actually ask those questions. And then, you know, you want to be able to have real life, real life answers. (laughs) And, if you're not applying for teaching jobs, it's best if they come from outside of the classroom. So um, I think that's really, 
that's really important. And it just gets so much easier once you've been on the job. I had, I've had one or two interviews after I started working in my current job. And one was like just a few months after I had started working there because I felt it was my absolute dream job. Uh, so I decided to apply and I got a lot of the same questions and I felt so much better able to answer them just because the experience that I now had within just two or three months of, of actually working on the job was so much more relevant and relatable than all of these things that I had sort of fabricated out of thin air in preparation for the original job interviews. And over the course of the seven or eight or 10 months or whatever that I went on job interviews that, you know, obviously I really hone those skills and that's something that really gets easier with practice, which is another one of those tricky things about the job market, both the academic job market and the Altec job market, which is just that you're probably not going to get the first job or the second job or the third job. And so, it's for a lot of us, I think it is a question of being in it for the long haul. And that's a financial risk. And that's a challenge when it comes to childcare. And it's, it's, it's difficult. It's not, you know, it's not easy either way. So I think sometimes there's the idea that the academic job market is completely unattainable and, or, you know, at least it often feels that way for me. The Altec market seems a little bit more attainable, but it still is a really long process and it's very difficult to translate the skills that you get in grad school to the more practical Altec positions, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think you get that feedback like, well, aren't you over-educated for this or something like that, which sounds like to me so counterintuitive. I'm like, how can you be too smart for any job? You know, but- <laughs> I actually, I will say this. Um, when I did my informational interview, and I got that in other jobs too, people were concerned that I was just sort of applying for these jobs to hold me over while I was actually trying to get a tenure track job. And so I once I realized that that was a concern, I was very deliberate in making that explicit in my job materials that I was not looking to work in a tenure track position because I didn't want to be excluded as a potential candidate because of that worry. So that's, I think, something to keep in mind. A lot of um, potential employers will expect or might expect that you're not really interested in the job. You're just trying to find something until you can get a tenure track position. And so the more you can convince somebody that's looking at your CV or your resume and your letter that you're actually like, that's the job that you want, the, the better, I think. Um, so you said you've uh, applied for a few jobs. Can you share with us some strategies that you've used in terms of finding jobs that are of interest even knowing what might work or what might be of interest, that's still something that's somewhat of a mystery to me. Um, and do you have any tips for resources resources that you've used that have worked really well? Um, can you speak to that a little bit? I'm sort of laughing because I go back so old school that I'm like, indeed, that was my jam. Monster. Monster. Do- Remember Monster.com? I don't know. That's like so old school. I don't think that's still out there. 
Um, I've tried a lot of different techniques. I will say that it seems to me that LinkedIn is the major hub now. And I have heard that a lot of people will get approached by recruiters who are looking for corporate trainers. And so I don't know that that's uh, something that would appeal to me, but I actually have had colleagues that stepped away from the less lucrative adjunct faculty position to become a corporate trainer. And so that's like if, for example, you would go, I've had people like this come to my college where they work for Hypothesis. It's that social annotation program that I'm really wild about. And they come and they show you how to use it. And they're, you know, I think it would be, it's like you're teaching faculty members how to use this particular product. But in some cases, it would be outside of academia, right? So you're teaching bankers how to use this new banking software. So on LinkedIn, um, every once in a while, I do get approached um, for those types of roles. I'm just not really interested. Uh, but LinkedIn seems to be a really good place for forming connections. And a lot of the non-academic jobs I have really have been via word of mouth, just kind of like who I know that's working in media that happens to know of an opening or a gig at the time. And so a lot of it is just that you mentioned networking earlier, I think it is networking and making those connections, whether it is in Alltech or just um, really something even wildly far away from academic publishing or anything else like that. I think it is a bit who you know. I have sometimes gone straight on to college websites like local sort of within my, I guess, acceptable limit of driving, like, okay, I would possibly drive 45 minutes to this other college to work there. So let's see what they have as far as like admin jobs. What's going on there? Do they have any jobs that I think I could do? Because I still like that idea of working in higher education, but maybe it's not as a professor, right? Maybe it's not teaching classes, but maybe it is doing something. I saw one not so long ago, which was like creating content for professors at the college. And I'm like, that sounds pretty cool, actually. It's kind of like what we're doing here. Um, and so I sometimes just go right on those college websites to look around. I have been on Indeed in the past. I've used a lot of those different things. And I think, you know, I, I see jobs, I see postings, but I think a lot of it does boil down to getting that extra connection. I had a colleague come into my other class on Thursday that sort of talked about using LinkedIn. And even to me, I'm not this bold, but it sounds like you kind of did this yourself, which is like, you see a position that you like, you can maybe try to add a contact or connect with a person affiliated with that organization and just say, hey, you know, this is Aaron, and I'm interested in possibly working for your organization. Could you tell me a little bit like what it's like? Or how do I get my foot in the door? Or what are they looking for? Do you like it there? I don't know that I've ever done that um, because I'm a little bit passive, but I think that is. I think that could be a really good technique if one should be so bold. I think, though, you did, it does make sense to kind of be a little bit more encompassing because you had mentioned this in conversation and I wanted to know if we were talking about the same thing. But I think now more than ever, it might behoove us to sort of think outside of the box because I just got something that came up on one of the um, mom-related academic social media feeds that I'm on. And I got this um, article, and it's it's from John Carroll University, and it basically said the board decision virtually eliminates tenure, faculty say. And so I know you had mentioned that um, someone in your group of 
context also mentioned the same thing. I don't know if it's the same college or not, but I'm like, well, that's not very positive to say that people are voting away tenure or tenure is being dissolved. So I guess when we were thinking about like what we could talk about next, it kind of made sense. I don't know. Had you you said you had heard a, a similar um, story from maybe an author you're working with that they were getting rid of tenure at her job. Was that right? Somebody somebody had mentioned that the school had eliminated positions for tenured professors. So there were there was an announcement made that a fairly substantial number of tenured faculty were not going to be invited back to campus basically. Like they were they had until the end of the school year and then they were going to be out of a job even though they had they had been tenured and um worked at the school for a number of years. So oh. it's a terrifying situation. Um of course, you know, I can if somebody decided to, you know, release me from my responsibilities, I would get a two week notice. And so it's, you know, it's not more secure to look outside of the university, but it's also not that if the university sort of loses that, that security, I think that that's a huge part of the appeal. And so if that's something that we're, you know, that we're losing, I don't know how I don't know what that does to the desirability of the jobs I feel like right well mine is the same right I'm not a tenure track faculty so it's the same and well we'll just leave it at that but right you just never know right when and you just try to do your best day to day and hope that that's you know hope that your work speaks for itself Um, with that in mind though as we kind of move closer to the end of the hour do you think there are any trade-offs I mean there is a lot that I like about working as a professor I like that my days are different. I like that like no class is the same. I can teach the same course time after time, but it's always a different group of people. So there's like always different conversations. I do like that in the past, I got to do a little bit of that travel. That was always fun and meaningful to me, trading ideas. And as I've noted again and again on the show, I do think that working in higher academia could be very conducive to having a family. I don't know why in the past it's been like such a big issue because I think I could easily schedule my classes and my office hours at the same time my own kids are in school. So I don't think it should be that big of a deal. Um, I'm thinking that people are realizing that now. Do you feel like there's any trade-offs? Are there advantages to being in the alt-ac field um, or disadvantages? You know what I'm saying? Like, I think there's a lot that I like about my job. There's some parts that are hard, what would you say if someone was thinking about going this route? Are there other advantages that um, to being outside of the academy? Well, I think every job, this is a platitude, but every job has things that are hard and that are, you know, that are fun and that are less fun. Uh, in terms of the work hours, I do sometimes miss the flexibility. I do remember like timing my target trips around, you know, the, like just, I used to just go to target during the middle of the day and then do my reading at night just because I could. And right now it's sort of like, I make a point not to at least email people outside of regular working hours because I don't, and I don't have to. So there's sort of like not the expectation that, I work outside of the normal hours, which is the, which was a huge factor for me in deciding to do Altec just because I wanted to have 
more clear delineation. And of course, you know, and I and I do think that generally speaking, or at least before the pandemic, that to me was a big big benefit of working in the job that I have right now was that it was just clear cut. There wasn't, you know, I wasn't expected to work on the weekends. And, and that was, and I was in, I also really enjoyed working in the office. Like it was very important to me to have a job where I had an office to go to, even though the commute in DC was horrid some days. I just really liked having a space to go to and colleagues to work with and then, you know, being able to leave work at work and come home and sort of be with the kids. And of course, now with working from home before the pandemic and now especially the pandemic where everything just sort of gets more jumbled and the expectations are changing where, you know, people are more open to maybe having you have kids around. And at the, so everything just becomes so jumbled and that's really difficult for me. So I'm sort of like losing the benefit that I originally had from working in the Altec field just for, just because of how the pandemic has changed everything. But that's sort of like the number one factor for me that was, um, that was, important for me. Yeah, I understand where you're coming from because we've talked about blurred boundaries already, but I still get emails at really off the wall times from students and from colleagues. And I'm like, why are you writing emails at 447? I am sorry. I don't know. Maybe maybe you have insomnia, but I'm certainly not going to answer it at that moment. Or also students who I've told, and I am online seven days a week because I am teaching online classes, which are asynchronous. So I I actually already have work today. I got up and I usually on Saturday morning, I try to get it out of the way early. I try to just like log in because everything comes in at midnight. So I get up and I do grading from maybe eight to 11 and try to leave it at that. But I'm certain when I go back online, I'm going to have some questions and comments there and things like that because it's the end of the semester. Actually just had one when I was waiting for you to log on um, about someone, can they turn in their stuff tomorrow? And I said, yeah, sure. Um, But that, you know, that's tricky sometimes to me because there isn't like an off. It isn't like I can just say, well, normal business hours are over. And then now, like you said, it's spilling over. And, you know, I'm going to say it because I don't think my family listens to this. Um, I'm rolling my eyes, listeners. But anyway, it's the lack of respect for my position right now, which I find to be a bit tedious. It's like I'm trying to be professional. I'm trying so hard, but my family just doesn't always respect it or get it. And I'm like, okay, so if another person is doing something that requires concentration and thought and focus, they're like, shh, 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 please be quiet. I'm trying to work on this. I'm trying to teach a class or I'm trying to grade papers. And because I'm grading papers in our living room on my little home office situation there, I'm not getting the same sort of silence. So that leads me to wonder if I can at some point just go to my office and teach even though I'm teaching this like online live, can I still go to my office now and teach from that space? I'm hoping yes, because I think that'd be awesome. And it looks like I might be teaching in person in the fall anyway. I mean, I'm scheduled to, so unless anything changes, so that will be different. Um, So to end on maybe like a high note, I've really enjoyed this conversation and it's given me a lot of food for thought. You said you've been reading something really good and I was excited to hear about that. Yes. So I've been excited to tell you about this. This is something that was recommended to me 
a while ago by a friend. And then it popped up in one of the books that I was working on. And uh, I looked it up. And then I was just like, I have to I have to have this. And so I it was an impulse buy and I left everything everything else that I've been reading, I just kind of left off to the side. So this is long, long intro. This is um, a book by a German American author. Her name is Nora Krug. She's a art professor in Brooklyn at a school in Brooklyn. And this is a graphic memoir slash scrapbook type of thing. And it's called Belonging. Uh, and now I'm I, blanking on the subtitle. The subtitle is something like a German's reckoning with home history and home or you something like right. that. You got it right. I'm actually on Amazon right now because I'm intrigued. <laughs> so you're right. A, Ger- a German reckons with history and home. And so what it is, it's a graphic memoir. So she moved to the United States right around the, like in the early 2000s, I think, right around the, the same time that, that I moved here. And so she starts being confronted with her Germanness in a way that she was never confronted with it at home or in Germany. And so, you know, people are, people are noticing her German accent. And so it comes up and it's sort of, it's a graphic memoir about how we as Germans, as a German culture and nation have dealt with our difficult history. So there's sort of this, um, this sense that we, and I think, so I think she's about like five or six years older than I am. So I think she was, she's also sort of like third generation where we had a lot of material about it at school, about the Holocaust. We learned a lot about the Holocaust at school and, but there's very little, there was a lot of avoidance about asking questions about our own family and about our own grandparents. And so um, there is this very clear sense that, you know, I mean, if you talk to anybody, if you talk to any German from my generation, there is always this this idea of guilt and guilt surrounding our, our history and to what extent it's sort of like this inherited guilt that that people struggle with. And so she actually starts asking questions about her own grandparents and she goes into the archives and she um, goes around and starts gathering all of this material. And there were, there was a falling out on one side of her family. So she tracks down her, I think her father's older sister and talks with her to try and find out sort of like, were her grandparents sympathizers? Like, were they members of the Nazi party? What did they do? How did they relate to the Jewish? She's also married to a Jewish man, which is not a huge part of the book, but it's sort of like, it does come up. And so it's this really interesting presentation of archival material. So then she goes to like flea markets in Germany and she buys all of these photos and they're in there. Um, And like I said, but like I said, it's a graphic, it's a graphic presentation. So it's like a graphic memoir. It's very reminiscent or I don't know if it's reminiscent, but the only other thing that I've read like it is the, uh, are the Alison Bechdel books, uh, Fun Home and Are You My Mother? I don't, I don't know if you've read those. And so it's really interesting way just to sort of explore the own family history. But then also I saw um, some reviews on Goodreads where people were sort of frustrated with, they felt that it was narcissistic the way that she was thinking through her own sense of guilt and her own frustration or her own sense of like relief when she found out that maybe, you know, her grandparents weren't so involved. But I think it really is a book about how we're, how this generation of Germans 
is dealing with the past and with asking these questions. Um, and so it was, and then, you know, there was just, there were pages throughout that were like, they had like a drawing of like a super German item with some explanation that it was tied into the story, but it was called like, um, scrapbook of a homesick emigre or something like that. And they were just these like super German items. So that was like a really, um, heartwarming part of it where I would just like look at the page and look at this really one of the one of them was like a hot water bottle which and then she talks about like how her mom the how they had like multiple hot water bottles and it was like a ritual that like you know her mom would ask anybody if they wanted to you know a hot water bottle at night to to give them comfort and it's like totally a thing at our house like I have one and like I you know like my daughter will come and ask for one if she's you know if she needs something to comfort her so there there were these like it's very like multi-layered um and just was a really great great read so and i could you know even though i was like very personal to me i could definitely recommend it even to others who don't have that much of a personal connection to it so that was yeah it was it was an it was neat it was a really cool read have you I been like, reading anything oh. yeah no 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 i like that you're sort of bringing up this sort of like approach and the mu- multimedia that's always interesting to me beyond what it's about uh, but I know you've mentioned that, and I'm sort of like curious about that absence as well. I finished up two books by Luis Erdrich. Um, so that was funny. And the one actually was, I told you, the main character was a German immigrant. And so there, <laughs> I just, he's all about, I'm not trying to make light of it, but it, this, the book begins kind of post World War One, And so that character is really grappling with the PTSD and things like that. But he comes to America with his sausage recipes and just making the most wonderful German sausage. And I only say that because I'm remember when we were in Berlin, it was like the hunt, the quest to find the different, you know, curry versed and things like that. So I thought of you a little bit. Um, I have other books to read. I picked up um, this sci-fi book of the show I like. It's called Leviathan Wakes. And um, if anyone watches The Expanse out there, got to hit me up and we can talk about that. That's my favorite show. But this these books actually came out before the show. So it's pretty huge. It's about 800 pages. So I don't know where I'm at in that. Listeners, what are you doing? Are you watching anything? Reading anything? Are you looking into job ads at the moment? Where are you on your journey? We'd love to hear from you. Judith, if they did want to get a hold of us, remind us again. It's been a minute. Where are we on Instagram? And what is our Gmail address? Yes, our Gmail address is phd and parenting podcast at gmail.com we would love to hear from you give us some feedback we would love to actually hear some of your experiences on the altac job market if you have any or ideas of like where to look and what kinds of areas are interesting to you and it particularly in your field um we are also on instagram as phd in parenting and as aaron said i've We've been a little less active maybe on there, but we are there. Um, We love to hear from you there. And um, yeah, feel free to share anything that you want to share with us on there. Send us messages. We love to hear from you. Thank you so much for lending us your ears today. And we look forward to coming back with a new episode to you soon. Stay tuned. All right. Thanks so much. And we'll be talking to you soon. 